if you start to promote and empower people or recognize and remember them without respecting them and protecting them, the game's over before you've started. Can we agree that leadership isn't based on title or position? I have created this podcast to talk to everyday people who lead in extraordinary ways in their everyday lives, both professionally and personally, in the hope that it will inspire everyday people like you and me to realize we are everyday leaders. Welcome to Everyday Leadership. How do you create an environment that promotes, protects, and empowers people? This is a question I pose to my guest, David, today, who, as the CEO of the Commonwealth Games, looks after roughly 40,000 people, taking into account volunteers, permanent staff, and contractors. We delve into all the topics around transitioning from being an athlete, getting injured and not making it to Olympic Games, and moving into a corporate career in international sport. We talk around awareness, advocacy, and action, and how those three words helped him to champion and change the perception internationally around Paralympic athletics as a whole and with athletes themselves. We talk about Birmingham 2022. We talk about embracing protests by athletes in those games, which is completely different to how the IOC are approaching things. We talk about listening and so much more. It's a value-packed episode as always. Let's get straight into it. I have the pleasure of talking to David Greffenberg, who is the Chief Exec of the Commonwealth Games Federation. How are you doing, David? Very well, Joe. It's good to be here, and uh, I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, same here. I can't think of a better place to start than learning about your childhood and what it was like growing up in New Orleans, the Deep South, being the only one of the few white children around and how that experience and that background has actually helped shape and mold you into what you currently do right now. Yeah, uh, you know, growing up in the inner city of New Orleans, uh, we were we were known for uh, being the murder capital of the United States, being uh, a lot, uh, for a lot of things. Um, we were known for having one of the uh, uh, highest rates of heart disease and uh, and also our literacy levels, as well as our public school systems, were uh, probably a lot to be desired. Um, but uh, you know, that being said, we had a real richness of uh, pride and perspective, uh, a real sense of diverse culture. Um, being a port city, being a city that uh, you know obviously uh, had a bit of the good, the great, the bad, the ugly, a, co- a strong colonial link in history, um, and of course, uh, the legacy of slavery, you had this real melting pot of influences and and so forth. And I can tell you that every stage of that journey as a child going through that, um, you know, I really realized there was lots of things that divided the community, but also some wonderful things that really brought the community together. And those were things like food, music, uh, uh, art and culture and and sport 
Um, and one of the, at the age of 12 years old, uh, the 1984, don't do the maths, but uh, <laughs> uh, at the, at the, the age of uh, 12, um, the World Expo, the World's Fair came to New Orleans. And uh, that was the first time the city really was able to, to shine and start beyond all the things that were challenging, started to tell uh, a bit of the, the whole story around our character as a as a city and the things that we could be really proud proud of. And after that, both conferences and it became a real destination for tourism and conferences and and uh, you know obviously the hospitality market really started to thrive in the city. Still had plenty of challenges, but um, it was the, really the first time some of those, I would say, courageous conversations started to be raised, um, and uh, our sense of identity as New Orleanians became, I think, uh, even that much more solidified. How did you navigate, um, in a sense, being the only voice, being the only white voice around in that in that area at that point in time, especially being so young? I acculturated. <laughs> I assimilated in many respects. So I, you know, I think I probably up to the the age of twelve, I I really um, had an identity crisis um, in in many respects uh, because all all the kids I was playing playing with were, you know, we all had a um, we had our likes and our, and our dislikes and our and our um, commonalities and you know. Uh, had lots of fun on the uh, on, on the playground and at school and so forth, but th- there comes a time when you're about 12 years old where um, things start to change. And uh, my my first attempt at I think of the UK system that's S1, um, I didn't do very well, um, and that was a that was a pretty interesting time uh, where I had um, this divide happens, and you know people go 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 their ways and and that was something that uh, I really it became very profound the issues around racial inequality and racial tension in the city of New Orleans when it kind of affects you um, and that was the t- that was really kind of where I became really cognizant of my you know my privilege probably my bias and and even some of my prejudice as a, a young white man at that time or young white boy at that time um which i've been constantly trying to recover from <laughs> since so it's it's been but but that was something um you know it, it was it was not really obvious until this point and and i remember asking some pretty poignant questions to uh, relatives and so forth, and I'm making a lot of people feel really uncomfortable when I started asking them because I had a perspective. I had a perspective that they they did not have. I wasn't kept in a gated community, and I wasn't kept behind uh, doors. My mother was a was a social worker, and uh, you know gave me a real sense of what what the reality is in the real world, and that was uh, that was something that uh, you know I really valued, and I, I value you know to this to this day. Yeah. I think we're gonna as we go through your your career, we start to see those values coming out a little bit more. But going on from you being a twelve year old, you got into wrestling. I believe you made it to the U.S. International Open. I believe. Yep, yep, that's right. I I, I got to I got, I got to wrestle in in university. I wrestled in uh, high school, obviously, uh, which opened up the door to 
to go to university and then I had the chance of wrestling a bit internationally and to wrestle at the US Open and uh, then I had a, a, a an injury that uh, that kind of made me have to readjust and, <laughs> and pick up the pieces and find a new track that was going to really interest me. I studied sports management um, and so I feel really privileged to be doing uh, something that I, I uh, that I studied and that I was was interested in for for a while. Um, but what I've tried to do um, as part of that uh, part of that journey is, you know, obviously my identity and my sense of belonging as an athlete in, in wrestling um, was uh, a really important chapter in my my life. To transition from that and using my own reflective reflective uh, uh, you know my own reflections during this um, during this journey when I that kind of that fall from grace moment when you suffer an injury or you, you realize your career is moving on to something else um, it's a, it can be quite uh, it can be quite challenging and traumatic um, and so I had a lot of support um, I got. You know, I, I took a I took a very interesting journey at that point, um, but um, what I realize is uh, the importance of understanding what skills are transferable, um, and what perspectives are also transferable. You know, what you know, what are my strengths? Um, one of the strengths is how I I look at, you know, I kind of look at the world. Um, I have an insatiable curiosity for diversity. Um, and that's one of the things of just understand, understanding the diversity of a situation and then seeing how does all this intersectionality um, add value and what are the challenges around it. And so I really uh, I like to work with systems and, and models and, and I like to, to try to make sense of uh, what people say is the uh, nonsensical, <laughs> sensical, you know, so it's, it's, it, and that's, I realized that that's, uh, that was something that I was able to, to look at, look and find patterns and so forth. And that was something that wrestling, uh, you know, you see patterns in people's behaviors, you see patterns in people's movements. Um, and, and once you start to realize you can recognize those patterns, you know how to respond. Um, and, you know, it, it, it transferred very, very well into dealing with international sport, um, working with both elite and grassroots sports and, and bringing those together, using sport, you know, sport for uh, social change um, and, uh, you know, ultimately, you know, creating a platform uh, and a catalyst through through sport, you know, um, that, uh you know, maybe the world was less familiar with in terms of the, you know, the, the power of sport. Um, and, you know, and then of course, uh, Nelson Mandela uh, solidified the, the phrase of talking about the power of sport uh, back in, um, uh, when he was working with Laureus uh, Foundation and and really, you know, I think you know, talked about it as being that unique, uh, unique, uh, vehicle to, to to take us into you know places that uh, we may may not otherwise go so i yeah i i there's uh, there's been a lot of kind of uh, you know perspectives i've gained over the years and different chapters of my life but moving from an athlete into a professional career which i've been in for the past 25 years was a quite an important uh, 
you know, an, an important point of reflection. So for athletes like you were at that point in time who can have an injury and their career is over and who feel like they've got nothing left, how can, what advice would you give them to help them make that move or to realize that the skills that they have is is transferable into other areas of the sport so they can still be enjoyed involved in the game they love, but just look at it from different perspective. Yeah, I, I think you need to not wait until uh, you feel like it's too late. It's never too late. And I think that that's the point. But the earlier you start in exploring your interests beyond the field of play, the, 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 you know, and that, that could be big and small. What's my global interest? What's my, you know, and that may just be, I, I want to look after my family. You know, I want more time with family. I want, uh, you know, uh, I, I want to help the kids in my, my neighborhood. Or, gosh, you know, I, I want to make sure that we have more trees <laughs> around and, and I'm not living constantly in a, a concrete jungle. You know, it, 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 wherever your interest lies, you know, looking at interests that are bigger than yourself, things that you can champion, I think is quite healthy and helpful in not always focusing on yourself. And I think it becomes harder and harder with this wonderful world of social media because we become so self-consumed with our own image and our own identity and our own sense of sense of uh, popularity or positioning, where I think particularly young, young athletes looking at their place uh, what sincerely means something to them and stylistically fits with their, you know, their vibe. I think it's quite important, but I think it, that requires support. It requires self-reflection. It requires openness. And I, and I think, you know, we're seeing a, a, a change with young, younger uh, athletes that they are more willing to speak up and speak out and, and uh, you know, take a, take a position of what, means uh something to them and i think that needs to be encouraged and we need to encourage systems that uh don't oppress that but or or suppress it but really lift it and give it give it plat, uh, a sense of purpose and platform that will help with transition that will help with growth and so as you are aspiring inspiring retiring you you don't fall off the cliff you're actually able to, as, as, a, as you start to retire, you can bounce and come to the next ridge instead of fall down into the valley of, okay, and then try to pick up the pieces and get back up. So I think that diversifying your own, your own views and own interest is, is critical. Having interest, other, and that's hard because we, you know, particularly elite athletes as well, you become very myopic in your your perspectives and your views and and selfish you become very selfish and i think it's 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 learning to be more selfless early as early on because the the world will um tap you on the shoulder someday <laughs> yeah when you have when you have kids uh even more so <laughs> that'll remind you that the world is not about you but <laughs> <laughs> so. you let to to speak up from a really young, young age, I think you're credited with changing things around para, Paralympic sports. And when you went in there, you were very young. I think you said you were like 10 years younger than a lot of people around you. So how did you 
develop that courage to be like, actually, we need to change. And it was very uncomfortable conversations you had at that point in time. Yeah. So that's never easy to do. Awareness, advocacy, and action. I I, I built my own awareness of, of the situation. And, and I, one of the things after my, my injury in around 94, I started uh, working with the Paralympic movement in 95 and started in the lead up to Atlanta and working with a number of athletes. I realized that it was being legitimate is not just what others think of you, but also what you think of yourself. And so a number of the athletes I started to talk to were referred at that time as disabled athletes. And I used to, and very controversially, I said, well, what, I started to talk with the athletes and say, well, what do you want? And everything they said is I want to be, uh, I want to have the same services and the same opportunities and the same recognition as an elite athlete. I said, well, you are an elite athlete. So let's start acting like elite athletes, start referring to ourselves um, as elite athletes, and we'll put elite athlete systems in place to support you, but also standards. And what I learned at this time was that if you want to be credible in the eyes of others and legitimate, you need to first be legitimate. And being legitimate is setting standards and achieving standards. And sometimes that's hard because that, with standards comes accountability. <laughs> and standards comes restrictions. And standards comes systems and, and form. And it's less agile in that, in that respect. But what it does do is give you a sense of benchmark. And with legitimacy over time equals credibility. And so what I tried to do with, with my work with the Paralympics was to set standards that measured well to global benchmarks and that would legitimize uh, Paralympic sport in the eyes of spectators and, but most importantly, in the eyes of athletes. Um, so what athletes are not just uh, your fellow able-bodied peer, but other para-athletes would start to really refer to uh, themselves as elite performers um, and feel that and not, and not always be uh, seeking to be legitimized. You know, and I think that was the, that was the journey, you know, over almost uh, 16 years of work with the Paralympic sport movement. Um, I had the pr privilege of being one of the first professional uh, staff at the, uh, the, the headquarters in Bonn, Germany, uh, for the International Paralympic Committee. So essentially, we set, we set a number of standards to ensure that athletes were feeling and um, performing at a level that people would feel that that, that uh, legitimized their performances as elite performances. Um, and whether that was an event in terms of the number of people participating in an event and the quality of competition of that event, um, whether it was the number of spectators that we were able to attract, the testimony we were able to capture, all of that over time uh, showcased a legitimate standard which, get, which added to our credibility. So legitimacy... 
uh, over time equals credibility. And with enhancing that credibility over a number of years, um, we were really able to, to transform uh, the para, uh, Paralympic sport movement um, into a, a real force to be reckoned with. And, uh, you know, the, the, the whole notion of access, inclusivity, um, equality, diversity, um, you know, you, you don't get uh, more intersectionality than the Paralympic, <laughs> a Paralympic village, let me put it that way, <laughs> um, and, which is which is wonderful. And, I, and that, you know, and, and also when you start to look at the perspectives and perceptions of disability worldwide in different regions and different uh, different countries, even different, you know, from different uh, in rural environments versus urban environments, I learned so much. I learned so much about myself and and and, and others, and you know, uh, you know, this this notion of um, uh, humanity uh, in all of its forms. Um, you know, whether it's a con- whether you have a congenital disability or due to traumatic traumatic injury, um, and the nature of that that injury, or the nature of how you were raised um, with a, a congenital disability you know it, it it everyone has a different story so it's it really helped it really helped shape the way that I look at uh, diversity in its in its widest form but also the the, the, the point that uh, was made to me very early on in my career um, growing up in New Orleans we didn't have much snow um, and when I was about 20, three years of age, I was charged with running an event out in Colorado uh, in the mountains, a ski event. (laughs) I couldn't ski. Uh, And uh, I went uh, to this event, organized all the logistics around it, no problem, but was taken up to the top, uh, uh, had uh, some of the para-alpine skiers say, we're going to teach you how to ski. And the father of para-alpine skiing, a gentleman by the name of Captain Jack Benedict, um, said, you know, this, is, this will be a, a great lesson for you. So they take me up to the top of a very tough slope, I knew no better, and left me. And there was a, there was a guy in a monoski, a guy, a guy with a, a, outriggers double, double below the, the knee amputee, and they left me. And... Um, about an hour and a half later, I get down to the bottom of the, the slope. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Probably more snow in my uh, jacket than, uh, <laughs> than, than actually on the slope uh, with my skis in my hand. So I get to the bottom and they're sitting there having a cup of coffee or, or, or maybe something stronger. And I, I asked them at that time, I said, um, you know, what happened? Uh, and they, they said, well, you, what did you learn? I said, well, I learned I can't skate. And they said, no, no, no. What you learned is you're only as disabled or different than the way people treat you and your ability to adapt to your environment. Wow. And what that taught me there was how in the work that I do, help people adapt to their environments, create welcoming environments, and treat people as people. And that, no matter what, no matter what the diversity, you know, I had a guy with a visual impairment, uh, a, a guy in a monoski uh, with a spinal cord injury, 
a double below the amputee, and then there was me. And I was the most um, uh, incapable at that time of getting down the hill. And I was taught later on. So we went back up the hill, uh, a much easier slope, by the way, and they taught me how to skate, which was great. And that, for me, uh, was a was a real transformative point. Um, and, and also showed that, you know, later on, I, I realized that what I'm really in the business of doing in sport is creating some of people's proudest moments. And so how do I use the power of sport to first exercise our duty of care, respect and protect people, create that safe environment, but then ensure that when preparation meets opportunity, people can be successful. Um, and that's about having the right power to promote people and empower people. So respect, protect, promote, empower. And then at the end of the day, it's about how we really celebrate and continue to celebrate and recognize uh, accomplishments. And that's recognizing people and, uh, and, and ultimately uh, remembering them. Yeah. So respect, protect, promote, empower, recognize and remember. And that's a continuum. So if you think of it in that kind of sequence, and that's what we do. That's what we do with major sporting events uh, like the Commonwealth Games. That's what we do uh, with the Paralympic Games. That's what we do with, you know, and, and that's transferable. You can do that, you know, in, in, in music. You can do that in the uh, entertainment industry. But it really, I think, it, it, you know, how you do that, particularly focusing on that duty of care. You, you know, if you start to promote and empower people or recognize and remember them without extra respecting them and protecting them, the game's over before you've started. <laughs> so, you know, the duty of care piece is, you know, creating that welcoming environment, creating that safe environment, um, creating an environment where, you know, people have a good uh, foundation to, to be who they are is critical. Um, and, and, you know, if you can't do that, you need to go back to, go back to, 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 to start and start again, you know, and that's, that's what I've learned is that it really starts with that. So as a leader in your various roles from when you worked in Germany to the Glasgow games and obviously where you're right now as well, you lead a massive team, Things I looked at the stats for the Glasgow things like fifteen thousand volunteers, like a thousand four hundred paid staff, like thirty thousand contractors. That's a really big team. How do you convey this attitude and this culture that you just talked about right now in that team and make them feel that way? It, it, the systems that I've I've looked at uh, again, going back to the systems approach, you can't just take a kind of a shotgun approach to this and just say, hope something sticks. <laughs> um, when you're dealing with that type of uh, magnitude um, and, and responsibility, most importantly, is that you have a duty of care for every one of those people. And you need to take that seriously. Um, that When you fulfill uh, a, a leadership role, your first priority is a duty of care. And therefore, you need to be trustworthy. Um, and so Glasgow, we had a set of collective values, which uh, were really important um, and were on uh, every single wall of every single office and uh, 
meeting room in the organization that we had established as a collective. And that's important, collective values versus individual values. You'll hear a lot of organizations talk about what I expect of you versus what we expect of each other. And that's key because it's bigger, you know, as I think good leaders know when to lead and take the arrows and when to follow and praise and push and, and, and lift their teams and recognize their teams and remember their teams. It's, it's, it's a, you know, leadership is not about you. It's about others. And that's a, that's a hard lesson sometimes to learn. But, uh, when I was given the opportunity for Glasgow, uh, I think particularly being um, you know, not Scottish, not Glaswegian, uh, not from the Commonwealth, uh, I had one track of mine, and that was to deliver the best games for Glasgow, for Scotland, and for the Commonwealth, <laughs> and for people. And so I felt a real sense of uh, duty, a sense of pride, um, and responsibility. And so those values of we are trustworthy being at the basis uh, was absolutely critical from the start. So we needed to we needed to trust others and we needed to be trusted. Um, we needed to constantly raise the bar. So I needed to challenge people to don't do it this way just because that's the way we've always done it. Let's challenge one another to, and even if it's hard conversation, to get the right result, to move the dial for everybody. And that, that's, that's a hard one. But we, we can do that if we create a trusting environment. So we are trustworthy. We constantly raise the bar. We win together. And when we have success, your success is my success. My success is your success. Our success is celebrated by both of us. And I think that's critical is that winning together and then having a, a mindset of say what you do and do what you say. Deliver. Deliver. You know, and, you know, I think what, what I find is people, many people find safety in numbers because they're afraid. They either don't trust the situation or they have a natural propensity towards say, uh, risk, uh, they're more risk adverse or, 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 or are driven more by anxiety. And some people are much more focused on ambition <laughs> and their own interest. The key to good leadership is learning to teach people how to control that anxiety and harness that ambition for the common good. And that's good delivery teams do that. So, Trustworthiness, constantly uh, raising the bar, winning together, and having that mindset of delivery that takes everyone with you and addresses the anxieties and harnesses the ambitions, and you, you know, that that leads to a delivery of a good good project. And you can, when you get that mentality and that culture, uh, you know, working, you can you can get forty six thousand people you know, pulling all in uh, a common direction. Doesn't mean you're not going to have challenges, but you have the ability to, to bounce from those challenges and address those challenges with some solidarity, which is, which is important. I'm just thinking, you said at the start there, you're not from Glasgow, you're new to the role, and you're coming with ideas and principles, which 
are not normal. A lot of people do have the, they're put in a box and they stay in that box or they don't challenge the system or they don't speak up or they don't harness the um, the fear and they stay on that on that. Um, they don't they need that growth mindset. They don't have a growth mindset, naturally speaking. So how do you, from the start, coming in with all those, I guess, um, things against you, how do you start to build trust when naturally they might not trust you based on what they've seen in the past? I came into Glasgow saying, I have a lot to learn. I never run a major sport event in Glasgow. I have a lot I've done in the world but I've never done this in Glasgow. Now, the reality is not, no one had. <laughs> but showing respect for what had been done in Glasgow and the way that uh, you know, Glasgow and Scotland had a track record of running events, listening to people, not just hearing them. I, I, the, I, the differential there, I always say, is that, great, I, I've heard you, now let me tell you what I want to say. <laughs> Versus... I've listened to you. Let me reflect on that. Active listening. Active listening. You know, we talk about it all the time. Doing it is harder. <laughs> you know, a number of times I've caught myself and slapped myself on the wrist and said, you're not listening. <laughs> you're hearing, but you're not listening. Um, and learning, learning, learning about a situation. It, it takes engagement, going out and talking to people, but really actively listening and not you know, not throwing up barriers to them or yourself as you're listening. You know, am I listening in the realm of possibility or am I listening in the realm of limitation? And so I wanted to dream in only possibilities with Glasgow. And so I, you know, showed respect, listened to people, learned, and then I finally started to open up my big mouth. When I had a, <laughs> when I started to have a, a better understanding of what we were trying to achieve and what we wanted to to work with and what people's fears and ambitions were, and uh, both individually and collectively, and you know some of the huge ambitions that people had, you know there there had been a lot of uh, disengagement, a lot of broken promises, a lot of uh, you know skepticism mistrust for big, you know, big, big publicly funded projects and so forth. You know, you go to any city, you're going to have very similar, <laughs> similar elements. So I learned a lot about, about, uh, about really what, what, what was, you know, and that, and that, that, that differed between the East end and the West end and the South side and the North side of the city and, and Glasgow's perception of itself in comparison to Edinburgh at the time, or, you know, its place in Scotland and, you know, Scotland's place in the UK and, the, you know, and we're in the lead up to the referendum and all of those different pieces. It's a fascinating time to be, to be involved with all of this and to bring all these component pieces together in a meaningful way was, um, was quite critical uh, to, to, to listen more than you contributed, uh, particularly from the start. Once you get, once we set a, set a pathway and set a, uh, a strategy collectively, we needed to deliver to that. But how we started that was, it was really about, you know, understanding, you know, who are the influencers, who, you know, who, who, who are, you know, who are going to make, who are going to make or break this. And what we determined was actually it was, 
it was Glasgow. <laughs> it was it was the people of Glasgow, um, the people of Scotland. You know, it was this this needed to be a games for the people. So, the, you know, I think we 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 coined it originally the People's Games. A number of games took took uh, that that title after it, but we originally said it back in 2012 or 2013 that you know we aim to be the People's Games and to be not. Um, a games that uh, tried to be anything but what what we were, not what others uh, you know may have uh, perceived, and that and that talked to the actual kind of essence of what we all wanted the Commonwealth to be, and that was something you know when we start to to bring that out. What does your Commonwealth mean to you? What does it mean to you to be a Commonwealth citizen? Has anyone ever asked you that? <laughs> and people would go, no, I don't even know what you're talking about. And that was a fascinating conversation, but we did that. Now, or we got a pretty strong answer is that, you know, this, this is, you know, it, uh, you know, the, the, the shared history, uh, the selfless leadership, the modern ideals, you know, something in one of all those, you know, would, would, would come out of the discussions and it was fascinating. You know, because in some areas it meant people took real pride and in, in others they took shame or others real disdain, you know. And so how do you take that brand and make it actually as a force for good? What do you do? You take all those component pieces and start to make it work for you. And that's what that's how we started that in Glasgow. So then thinking back to where we are right now with the Commonwealth in Birmingham in 2022. I guess the first question is to speaking about what the Commonwealth what the Commonwealth means. What does Commonwealth mean in the backdrop of George Floyd and everything that's happened recently with Black Lives Matter and obviously people having a lot of conversations around around race? Yeah, it it means a lot. <laughs> if you look at the you look at the Commonwealth, um, it's history. Um, the good, the great, the bad, the ugly. You know, there's a there's a real. It's geography, very diverse, and it's demography, very diverse. We have two thirds of the world's small states and island states. We have uh, one third of the world's population, and we've got uh, you know the legacies of. Uh, colonialism and conflict uh, and industry and innovation and <laughs> all of these elements, you know, that, 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 you know, coincide. But, you know, one of some of the real issues that have come to the tide is the honesty and talking about the shared history, um, uh, the, the amazing leaders that have come out of Commonwealth countries, uh, some out of innovation and some out of struggle. Um, and then, of course, uh, some of the modern ideals that form the Commonwealth in terms of this Commonwealth after World War II, the the uh, and the and the, the, the struggle against apartheid and this uh, the creation of the Charter and the most recent version being signed in 2013, which really stands for peace, prosperity, good governance, and human rights. If you're going to be the Commonwealth, you need to be all of those things. You need to, you can't just be part of it because it's like being part of yourself. <laughs> so when you talk about 
historical injustice, which is a which is you know something that you go to many Commonwealth countries. It's a very important point of identity. Whether everyone talks openly or is comfortable to talk openly with um, a white guest in their uh, midst, uh, that's something I've learned to to work with and work through to where we can have open, honest, and courageous conversations um, about people's true feelings around uh, the legacy of slavery or indigenous servitude or issues around uh, uh, challenges um, in post, post-colonial, post-conflict uh, situations or uh, issues around indigenous truth and reconciliation or First Nations indigenous truth and reconciliation, um, religious sectarianism, you know, which you, you know, communities across the Commonwealth, dare I say probably across the world, are faced with one or some of of those pieces. You know, when you land uh, on someone's, or you come to someone's land, uh, people have been affected or are impacted by one or some of those those issues. Um, and so to to talk openly about those issues and may, maybe more honestly and openly than ever before to understand them, to 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 listen, to, to learn, and then to see how do we how do we come together and bring these things, you know, to the forefront to address it. it what we've done is we've created a model um, based on peace, sustainability, and prosperity. You cannot have sustainable and prosperous communities without peace. And peace starts with a true respect, protection, and promotion of people's human rights. That's the basis. If you don't respect someone's rights, go back to, go back to respecting someone's rights. <laughs> respecting, protecting, and promoting their rights. What that allows you to do is recognize marginalized groups. And within that marginalization, there's usually naturally conflict that has derived through the past and the need to take a journey of truth, understanding, reconciliation, and justice, or justice and reconciliation. And that's how we start to develop peace. Then you can start to work on sustainable development, you know, and, and, but if you do not address the elephant in the room around peace, you, you're, you may be, it's not, you're not sustainable. You're not, because you're not stable because you're building the house on sand versus granite. And that's what we've realized. So our vision as an organization is that through sport, we create peaceful, sustainable, and prosperous communities. That's our vision as an organization that was adopted in 2015. And uh, we work to achieve sustainable development and, and prosperity but that comes with the focus on peace. So the conversation, you know, as the um, conversations globally have started to emerge around racial equality and uh, police brutality and, you know, that have been longstanding and have really come to a pinnacle head around this, this, uh, around the struggle for freedom, fairness, equality, and justice. 
um, the Commonwealth, we believe, has an important role to play in both social discourse, but also creating that opportunity for courageous conversation and brave and bold action. And the platform of sport, allowing people to be the true identity of themselves and to have that sense of belonging to something that's bigger than themselves and to make the world a better place by their very participation in an event that means something, that stands for something. That's the, that's the ideals that we're looking at. That happens to also be <laughs> an amazing sporting spectacle, an amazing cultural uh, festival, an amazing uh, stimulus for business, and uh, that also educates us, stimulates thought and discussion and growth. That's the that's the construct that we're we're talking to, and uh, it's um, complex but necessary. But to get that stimulation to get that to have those uncomfortable conversations that we just talked about and to get the peace and understanding to a sense you need to have the right people in the room one of the things that obviously has come up over the last couple of years has been when the board was created there was especially in Birmingham which is one of the most diverse places in the country there was I think it was one in 20 non-white members or on the board, so there was a complete lack of representation whatsoever. How did that happen then? And it, it's a it's a flaw in the construct of probably how we the, the rep, I think it's more actually it's more reflective of of the overall uh, systemic uh, inequality that we have in the world because we have a representative, largely representative board which is by its nature. So myself as the chief executive and our president were the two representatives on the board from the CGF, as an example. Now we both happen to wear the skin we wear. Okay. We had been talking, we had, as we saw this board being formed and the other representatives coming to the table from the different entities have to all be white. And so that right there, that discussion started a year and a half ago um, on, okay, where, where are we going to, you know, how are we going to ensure this becomes something that is much more prescribed in the future? Because that's what we need to do in our host city contracts. We cannot a- allow this to be left by chance. We need to actually be more prescriptive when it comes to governance and management and those, those pieces. And I think, um, you know, I, I think it's never good when you're on the reactive Particularly when you're, particularly when you've had the proactive insight, uh, to, to so. But I think I would ask people to judge us as we move forward, um, and also the lessons learned. And I think you know I, I've openly said that, uh, you know, I am regretful for the fact that we did not be we're not more prescriptive. But we felt it's 2020 and it's Birmingham, and we're going to get the we're going to get this because. It's Birmingham, and, and that's not to fault any one particular uh, partner or group, but I think what this does do, it gives us an opportunity to have this conversation, talk about this, use this as a lightning rod moment to uh, to push this agenda further and we have some really open and honest conversations about our, you know, wh- where do we want to go? What we did as uh, the CGF is that, you know, one of our, 
um, colleagues, Sandra Osborne from uh, Barbados, uh, who's a, a pretty infamous sports lawyer. She's the president of the Barbados National Olympic Committee. Um, uh, what we discussed internally is that, you know, Sandra's going to bring a perspective around the table, a voice around the table that, uh, and expertise around the table that we don't otherwise have. Let's see how we strengthen this board by making some changes. Um, and our president, Dave Louise Martin, and myself had a number of conversations about, okay, should I go? Should you go? Should we, <laughs> what's the best way to, what's the best way to, to, uh, to, to, to manage our, our sense of responsibility and, and, and take some action here. Um, and uh, within, you know, we've been talking about it for some time. Uh, the time, the time caught up with us and uh, it was, it was the right time to, to make that, uh, to make that change and that decision. Um, however, I think moving forward, we need to make sure it's much more prescribed in host city contracts that, you know, this, the richness of, uh, and diversity um, of voice and representation needs to, needs to be upheld and protected as, as we move forward. And I think uh, the organizing committee is, is moving on in this space on EDI and, and, you know, I think is probably more focused than ever. And I think that that's, that's a good thing. But uh, in, in hindsight, I think people, um, you know, I think if, I think are, are much, much more aware than they were a year and a half ago of, uh, and that's, that I see as a positive, but I, I also say, say it doesn't address the long standing issues of inequality that we have in this world, that we all have a responsibility to address and to, to continue to be movers and shakers on and to, um, uphold, not in a patronizing way, but we need to strengthen and lift people. Uh, you know, it's not about, it's not about, um, it's about so many different things, you know, uh, you know, what are the faces around the boardroom and, and the corporate world in general, you know, and I think that we need to have more open and honest uh, dialogues like this uh, on how we, how we shift the dial and how do we, how do we make space and and lift more people from more diverse backgrounds, you know, to positions of authority and power? Would you say that your your view is slightly different from the rest of the athletic world? I'm just thinking about the IOC and their comments around athletes will be banned or thrown out of the protest and podium. And you've come out and said the exact opposite where you support uh, is taking the knee of Black Lives Matter and all that. So I'm just thinking in the sporting world and the conversation you're having with your other colleagues in other organisations like the IOC, is the problem actually recognised completely or is it just ignored or... Protest is, you know, you could always say one person's protest is, a, is another person's... Uh activism <laughs> you know it's you know it, it, it's about creating environments where you uphold certain universal principles you know I, I would say that I think every sport federation looks to uphold freedom fairness equality and dare I say justice 
some people do it differently. And I think uh, speaking from, from our federation, it would be very hard to represent and serve the diversity that we represent and serve and then say, well, you can't be your authentic self. <laughs> so in terms of identity and belonging um, and upholding those universal values, it's important to create a platform for you know, building awareness, advocacy, and activism. And I think that you know when you when you put all those those uh, you know those pieces together, giving people voice and an opportunity, or coming to an event that you know really truly represents in its entirety what you feel and what you represent. My question is: is that you know is that going to stimulate protest, or is that going to actually stimulate solidarity? And so you know by proclaiming this is what we represent and how would we like to manifest our support and solidarity of one another at this moment. I think this starts a very useful conversation versus, you know, um, making it about the podium. Well, let's make it about the athlete. And uh, that's not, it's no criticism of the IOC. The IOC has an enormous amount of uh, uh, things to reckon with, you know, both historically as well as um, uh, uh, geopolitically. Um, and we are, you know, I'm not going to say any less complicated, but we're certainly different. Um, and we have our own complexity. So, um, you know, so we need to address, you know, what we can address. But I think it's important that, you know, that we're doing that and we're supporting athlete voice, um, athlete uh, advocacy and athlete activism as part of that uh, as part of that journey. How, what does it actually take to put together a games? Patience, partnership, a willing and able place, and people with hope and ambition. And that's, you know, that really brings together, you know, games. Because if you get the right places and they're, they're, and they're the right places within the place that you're hosting the games, that actually brings people together. And running the programming around that in terms of the scheduling and the support and logistic and, and uh, creating opportunity with that, you know, is just the, not just what you do, it's how you do it. Um, and so I think it's, you know, the, the how and the what are just as important. So what we create and what we conceive and, and, and what we deliver is also measured on how we've done that. Have we done it sustainably? Have we done it holistically? Have we done it uh, collaboratively? Have we done it uh, truly in a representative fashion? And I think those are the things of, you know, the character and personality of the brand is quite important because it's, it's you know, great. We delivered 11 days of great sporting competition, but took everyone on an amazing journey for five or six, seven, 25 years into the future that people are to that day are still proud of to that day recognize and remember it being a, a critical moment something they can be proud of and so you know we're in the business of creating people's proudest moments how do we consistently do that and do that for as many people as we possibly can that's what makes a great event um and sport again 
seeing our heroes and seeing those, seeing the surprises and the, and dealing with the disappointments is part of that, that journey, but it allows us to commemorate and celebrate all at the same time. And I think you get that right. You've got a, a wonderful, wonderful balance. How do you then go about attracting the stars to the athletes to come to the game, especially in thinking ahead to the changing schedules with COVID and how they're going to have everything kind of packed one on top of each other. I know you brought Usain Bolt to the games last time. So what, what tricks have you got? <laughs> what tricks have you got this time around? <laughs> wasn't, wasn't an easy feat, but you know, um, we created a, you create a platform that works and that, and that's, that's it. You know, you, you get the reach in terms of uh, you get the purpose you know, in terms of uh, what we what we represent and, and and the influence that we can have, you know, our partnership with UNICEF was a was a great. Uh, we raised six point five million pounds for children uh, during Glasgow twenty fourteen and used that money to benefit eleven point seven million children in fifty three countries with programs over four years. Eleven point seven million children benefited from those programs. Create moments that that people want. You, you create the place that people want to be, and I think um, we I think we have all the ingredients in Birmingham to create the place to be in 2022. And I think uh, what we stand for, what we represent, means more now than ever. To to saying, yep. Right after athletics, world athletics, I'm going to come right to Birmingham because I got to be there. I got to be there for the experience. I've got to be there for what it represents. I've got to be there because I need that Commonwealth medal because of what it represents. And so what it represents becomes something quite important. What does the Commonwealth represent? Why is it relevant and resonant in this day and age? And so it's very important between being awarded the games or, or now and those games that we continue to reinforce what this means and why it's so important. And that medal means, starts to mean um, that much more when people start to feel that way and give it that testimony and, and start to use this, use this platform um, to make the world more peaceful, sustainable and prosperous through the power of sport. Just before we wrap up, I'm just going to ask you some quick fire questions. Okay, go for it. Quick fire. <laughs> what is the worst job you've ever had? Oh, goodness. Um, I have to say washing dishes. Wash dishes in a restaurant in uh, in the French Quarter in New Orleans. And that was, uh, yeah, uh, that, was, that was pretty tough. <laughs> what is your favorite music genre? Yeah, I go back to hip hop all the time. So I'm, I, I that's my, that is my, uh, that's my roots. Um, uh, you know, we, I think New Orleans funk uh, with the Neville Brothers and so forth is also uh, one of my, 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 my favorites. Um, yeah, I think those are probably why New Orleans funk and uh, hip hop, that's, that's it. Oh, and I have to ask, who's your favorite hip hop artist then? Oh goodness! <laughs> you know, you know I, I grew up listening to um, Wu Tang Clan, and I, <laughs> I, I did not see that coming. You know, that, I mean, you know, from Staten Island, but uh, they had a real connection with the with New Orleans, and I just really liked uh, their vibe and their their kind of their story. 
we had in in New Orleans um, bounce, which uh, was derived in New Orleans, and so I kind of grew up in that that, that as bounce was uh, just making its move. So that was uh, that was around, but. Yeah, it's you know if you, anyone watches the New Orleans Saints uh, football team, they'll get a feel for crunk bounce uh, and a bit of hip hop <laughs> mixed in with it. What are your three guiding principles or your values? Uh, three guiding principles: Re- respect everyone, fear no one, and live life to the fullest. And what would you want your legacy to be? I would like to be uh, remembered for making the world a better place for as many people as I possibly can impact through the work that I do now and into the future. Wow. I'm going to say the work that you are you're doing, everything I read, researching up on you, you are definitely someone who is keen on making a difference to everyone and getting that equality in place, like we talked about with the Paralympics to what you've done in Glasgow, to what you're doing right now and driving that forward. And you definitely keep on speaking up, regardless of the, the amount of feathers you might ruffle. So it's it's definitely great to to hear. It's definitely great to hear the someone challenging the system and actually trying to change, change it from within as well. So thank you, Joe. No, I appreciate it. Um, it's, been, it's been a pleasure and thank you for the you know for the opportunity to speak with you today. It's uh, it, it, it's always great to to reflect and um, and to you know share a perspective with with others. So thank you so much. I appreciate you coming on. This is Everyday Leadership. Don't forget, I have show notes on my website, everydayleadership.buzzsprout.com. So check that out. And if you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you subscribe and tell someone else. Appreciate your support. I'll see you next time. This is Everyday Leadership.